0: Tragedy recently hit my wife's family. Her grandmother passed away a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months maybe. And part of the cleaning up process, the grieving process, part of the death process is going through the deceased stuff and finding things and disposing of things and all of the rest. Also giving the things away. This weekend was probably the completion of that process for our family. Uh, the grandfather sent, I think, probably the last stuff from Florida down to Maryland, and her two, her two other sisters went to divide all of the various stuff from grandma. And so she did that this Saturday morning, and I came home, and uh, I saw, I actually asked her, please take as little as possible. You can take anything you want, but as little as possible. We have enough stuff already. And uh, she was faithful in that. She had just two boxes instead of ten. I appreciate that. And in the box, there were these pictures of her growing up with her grandma and and family pictures. And then there was this letter that said, Mr. Stephen. And uh, I was intrigued. I said, I wonder what this letter is. And I opened this letter up, and lo and behold, it was a letter that I had written 11 years prior, 11 years prior, basically to this time, I was uh, getting married to Stephanie and I wrote uh, Mr. Stephen, that's my father-in-law's name, a letter explaining why uh, he should let me marry or why I was going to marry his daughter, despite him not wanting me to, and all kinds of other things. And it was a really interesting letter because I really bore my heart in that letter. I I didn't remember writing the letter at all. And the things I said were very vulnerable. I was kind of shocked by some of the things that I said. But one of the things that I found interesting about that letter was it brought me back to my mentality of love for my wife 11 years ago. What was it like then, right before marriage, and what is it like now? And it was interesting reading it because some of it, to be frank, was just downright idolatrous. I said something like, almost that resembled to live as Christ and to die as gain, something more... Like, to live as Stephanie and to die is unimaginable. I even said something very strange. I said um, that the way that I feel about Stephanie, that if she were to die and I was not a man of faith, I don't know if I could live any longer. Don't worry, I'm not suicidal, but this is how I feel. Just very strange things like that. Um, It was just downright idolatrous. And so, I love stuff just as much as I did then, but it's much more mature and healthy. And so in our passage tonight, we're going to talk about love and how we should appropriately love God. There's nothing wrong with loving others, but there should be a very clear distinction between our love for God, who will never fail us, who our very salvation in our lives are dependent upon, and our love for our wives, our friends, And the things that we have in this world. So please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God remains forever. So our passage begins with the exhortation, Do not love the world. Not just that, don't even love the things of the world. And this reminds me a lot of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In that particular passage, Jesus is warning about serving God and money, but there's a principle here that he states before that, namely that you cannot serve two masters. Your heart is only big enough for one thing. And how true is that? We can either be devoted to one thing or devoted to another. In fact, this idea of devotion is often why when you have someone who is addicted to something, that they suddenly start, stop liking to do the things that they used to do. Because you're taking their time. All of their passion and all of their desire wants to go to that addiction. And so even the things like spending time with family and the things they used to enjoy now become obstacles to the thing that they really want, back to that addiction. It's that principle that we can only serve one master. Our heart is only big enough for one thing. And how often does our heart get stolen after other things? And we cannot do it. We are fooling ourselves if we think that we can love this other thing with the same devotion that's only appropriate to God, but still be faithful to God. Jesus Christ says very clearly, you cannot do those things. And even those things can be good things. They don't even have to be even sinful things. In the beginning of this sermon, I told you about uh, the affection I had for my wife and have for my wife. Uh, that was a good thing. But even that, if it's replacing and subverting the love I have for God, it is a bad thing. And that's what Jesus also says in Matthew ten thirty-seven. He says, "Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me." Jesus Christ asks to be supreme in our lives. The greatest commandment is what? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. We're to love him with all of our being and to serve him faithfully. And so our passage, though, in 1 John is not just talking about our need to have exclusive love to God, that God needs to be on top of our lives, but that is there. But it's also talking about that we need to not share our love with God, for love for the world, particularly. Love for the world particularly is dangerous and corrupting and seeks to steal us from our Lord. Now what does it mean when it says we're not to love the world? Well, we live in the world, don't we? You're on you're in or on the word, however you want to think about it. First Timothy four four says this, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So the word is good. God has given us the world and its pleasures, and these are to be enjoyed. So it's not saying that if we just simply love the sunset, if we simply love friendship, if we simply love food and drink and all of these good things that we are somehow not Christians, that's not what it's saying at all. In Genesis one thirty-one, God says this about the world. He says, God created everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God created this world, and he created it to be enjoyed. And In fact, he wants us to receive these things with thanksgiving. That's why all food is purified. You can eat anything you want, as long as you receive it with thanksgiving and appreciating the God who gave it to you. So if it's not talking about steaks and friends and sunsets and mountains, well, what is it talking about? Again, it says that if anyone loves the world or the things of the world. Well, what our passage is referring to is something very similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. He says this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which... The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice the double crucifixion language. That the world has been crucified to me. That this world is now dead to me. And I am now dead to the world. The world sees me as a stranger, as a foreigner, no longer as a friend, no longer as one who's in the world, but now one who's outside of the world, now one who is strange and other and hated. Now we become children of light. In a world that is full of darkness. This very world that Paul has been crucified to, and I to the world, is the same world that Jesus Christ conquered, and flip the other way, the same world that conquered us. And that's why Jesus Christ had to come and to conquer that world who had conquered us. We see this temptation of the world being presented to Christ in Matthew 4 with his temptation. In Matthew 4, you remember the devil, right in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit led Jesus out to be tested by the devil. And the devil tested or tempted Jesus. And he gave him various temptations. And then he gives him this temptation in Matthew 4.8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. I just want to stop you there. What if that was you? What if somebody offered you all of the riches and glory and power of the world if you merely compromised your morality just a little bit? Could you stand? Who knows? Do you stand? Put it differently. When someone tempts you with just a little bit, do you find yourself compromising? If you do, you're not the Savior. But Christ is the Savior because Christ does not buckle. He does not fail. He does not do what many of us have done and will do, but rather Jesus says this to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him you shall serve. Jesus Christ has offered the entire world in all of its glory, and all of its power and pomp, and Jesus turns it down because only God should be served. Only God should be worshipped. It's the same world that Jesus conquers, that also James, the brother of Jesus, warns against in James 127. He says there, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to do good works. That's what he's saying. That true and undefiled religion is to do good works. It's to visit those who are needy, the orphans and the widows, and to just be a loving and kind person. But more than that, it's also to keep oneself unstained from the world. Not only to reach out in love, but make sure the world doesn't come back and reach out for you. To be polluted by the world is a false religion. We're not to be polluted. We're to be unstained. We're to be light bearers of the world. We're to transform the world or at least shine in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. We are not to be stained by the world. And, beloved, my fear for all of us and my fear for myself is... We often find ourselves stained by the world. We often find ourselves being contaminated, falling in love with the world. There's a reason why these passages are in the Bible, because these are our own temptations. If we look in our own hearts and see our own desires, that we're often lured to the world and want to make friendship with the world. Now, there's a good part of that and a bad part. There's nothing wrong with being friends of people of the world, but that's what I'm talking about. We often ourselves want to be lured back and get as close to the world as possible. And to demonstrate this, how often have people said, can I do this and still be a Christian? How often do we say that in ourselves? How close can I go until God is no longer happy with me? See, beloved, that itself is suggesting that we really want to be as close to the world as possible. Maybe it's an innocent question, but maybe not. Maybe it exposes something deeper inside of us that we are lured by the world, and we're tempted to go back to the world, something that we ought to do. This is why James 4, four says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is not fundamentalism. This is the word of God. It's what the word of God says. To be a friend of the world is to be an enmity. It's to be at war with God. There is the world system, and there's God's system, and there are diametrically opposed to one another. You cannot be both. You cannot have allegiance to the world and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And even in our culture, we see more and more our culture is becoming more and more wicked and more and more against the plain truth of God's word. And many of us will really have to ask the question, do we want to be a friend of the world? Or do we at least want to be on friendly terms with the world? Or are we willing to go outside of the camp with Jesus Christ and be rejected by that same world? Sometimes we think, The the ill treatment that we receive is because we're not Christ-like, and sometimes it is. Sometimes we're not Christ-like, and thus we receive the hatred of the world. But sometimes we are actually Christ-like, and that's why we receive the hatred of the world. People often think if Jesus was here, everyone would just love him, despite the fact that they hated him in his own generation. That's not true at all. If Jesus were here, he'd probably die very quickly because the world would hate him. Because when you shine the light against the world, the world fights back, and the world hates you. The world is evil, and to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy with God. It cannot be more clear. Why? Because the world, even though it was created good, has been corrupted, and now it's being controlled by the devil. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the Bible describes the devil in this way. He is the God of this age. You have a KJV, says, the God of this world. And he has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. And so as you look out there at the world, if you look out there as the unbelievers out there, understand that the God of this age has blinded their minds. They are blind. They're spiritually dead. Because they're under control of the devil. And how does the devil control them? Against their will? No, precisely through their will. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice the connection. They follow the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The devil often doesn't say, worship me. He says, worship yourself. Here's the pleasures that you want. Enjoy. Think nothing of God. That's how he blinds unbelievers. He blinds them with telling them that's all about them. Think about Adam and Eve. Did he say, worship me? No, he said, eat of the tree and you will become wise you will become god that's the devil he's a slanderer he boost he builds you up and says eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die so we cannot love this world we must rather hate it we must not be conformed to it but rather resistant and have our minds renewed but sadly again we often do find ourselves loving the world and so what are we to do then well we must turn back we must repent We must return back to our first love. Someone recently asked me in a car ride. They asked me, if Jesus was writing a letter to our church, what would he say? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And they were particularly referring to the letters in Revelation that Jesus did write letters to churches. So which one of those letters then would he say? And there's many letters that he has reproof. And some of those letters he says nothing bad at all. He says only good things. And I said, I hope that if Jesus wrote us a letter, he would just say, keep on keeping on. You are so faithful. And then I said, you know, I'm not sure what exactly he would write to our particular church because I often try to not focus on other people's sin, but my own sin. So easy to focus and point the fingers at others, but I am only in control of me. And so I should spend more time focusing on my sin than your sin. Isn't that true? And you should spend more time focusing on your sin than my sin. But the devil often has us do the exact opposite. Well, I said, you know, I think if he was going to write a letter to me, he might write the words of Revelation 2-4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. How often do we drift away? How often do we start running the race well, and then all of a sudden the world becomes enticing once more, and we start falling back into the world. And what are we to do? Repent back. Remember our first love. Remember the God who saved us. We are to see the world for what it is. It's an evil agent against God. It's an evil agent that seeks to destroy. So let's look now at how John describes this world. He describes it in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides Forever. So what do these expressions mean? What is all that's in the world? According to John in verse 16, he says it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now whenever I see an expression where I'm not exactly sure what it means, I go to multiple translations. Namely, the translations I normally don't recommend for reading. The more interpretive translations because they are amazing commentaries. So here's uh, two interpretive translations. Here's the NLT and the Good News Translation i read the NLT first. NLT says this, For the world offers only craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and our possessions. The Good News translation says, Everything that belongs to the world, what the sinful self desires, what people see and want, and everything in this world that people are so proud of, none of these things come from the Father. It all comes from the world. I like those two paraphrases. What is the desires of the flesh but the cravings for physical pleasure? Or as the Good News translation, sinful self-desires. And what is this lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, but craving for everything that we see or what people see and want? He's talking about these sinful desires that we have and these, this longing, this coveting, this always wanting, but we cannot for. Then he talks about the pride of life, which is the most difficult expression. But I think the pride of life is just the kind of pride that we have in this life. Namely, the pride that we have in our own achievements and our own possessions. We're always wanting to be proud people. We'll be proud about just about anything. There's these people that have uh, this physical deformity. There's this neck problem where they have these giant tumor-like things on their neck. And this whole tribe has it it's really interesting that in that culture, they make fun of people who have smaller neck tumors than other people. They're proud of their neck tumors. It's nuts. That's the kind of people we are. We'll be proud about just about anything. If we can, if we're better than you, we'll be proud about it. That's what's in the world. The world is full of the desires of the flesh, the things that we want but we cannot have, and things that we're ready to be proud of. Galatians 5.19 gives us a list of what these... Works of the flesh are. He says, the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. The works of the flesh are evil desires that war against our souls. the pride of life or anything in this world that we're tempted to be proud of, which is just about anything. But instead of these things, instead of walking in the works of the flesh, we are to mortify these works of the flesh and walk in the fruits of the Spirit. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Word of God and by His Spirit. As far as being proud, we're not to be proud of ourselves and the things of the world, but rather, as 1 Corinthians one thirty one says, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you look in the mirror and say, I'm so wonderful, but you really should be looking in the mirror and say, God is so wonderful and I am nothing. In fact, there are some things that you may look in the mirror and not like about yourselves. There may be some things in your life that you do not like about yourselves. And those things you may view as curses, but if they humble you, because you to realize you're not so wonderful. But God is so wonderful, and he is so amazing. Those things that you call curses might actually be the very things that God has given you as blessings to humble yourself and to give him the glory. If we boast, let us not boast in our achievements and our accolades, but rather boast in the Lord. Boast in how great he is, how great thou art not how great you are. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says this, For who makes you different from anyone else? Why are you so proud? What do you have? What's so great about you? From anyone else. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? What do you have? What makes you so amazing? Nothing. And even the things that do make you amazing, that's a gift that God has given you. Why do you boast as if you earned this? Instead of realizing that it is God's gift, there's many books about this topic of the myth of the self-made man. There is no self-made man. Everybody's standing on the backs of other men. God has blessed us with so many gifts, and instead of giving Him the glory, we often ascribe it to ourselves. We steal the glory for ourselves. And even the passage that Neil preached this morning, John the Baptist, Sam Goundy, the man who's willing to take the back seat and bring Frodo all the way there. That's what we have to do in our lives: take the back seat. And let Christ get the glory. He's the victor. He is the champion. And John the Baptist is a great Sam and He said this in that passage that Neil already read from John three twenty-seven. John answered, a man cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. That is how we ought to be humble. So realize we don't receive anything. We don't earn anything. That rather it's all the gift of God. And he deserves all of the glory. So we've seen what's in the world. Now let's look at its relationship to God. Look at the latter part of verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, how much more clear could that be? These things don't come from God. They come from the world. When God created the world, none of these things were in it. But we know the story, that sin came into the world. John chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5, through one man, sin came into the world and death through sin. All of this corruption, all of this evil, all of this distortion does not come from God, but rather comes from the world, and you cannot confuse the two. You have a very twisted theology if you think the evil of the world is coming from God. It doesn't. The Bible is very clear. It's not from the Father, but is from the world. But I was also very clear that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. None of these things are good. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of those things are evil. They do not come from God, but rather they come from the world. However, we must say this. This does not mean that God is not sovereign over all of these things. It just simply means that God is not the source of any of these things. But rather, their source is from the world. Now, you may be saying, how does that work? How can God be sovereign over this evil, but not its source? You may say, I don't understand. You may be confused. Well, there were many who have been confused before you. Romans chapter 3 is about this very confusion. Romans 3 says this, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? If our evil produces God's righteousness, we're not guilty, right? I speak in a human way. By no means. But then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? That good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. This confusion has happened before. What we don't want to do is fall into fatalism. God is sovereign, so we're puppets. We also don't want to take away God's sovereignty and pretend like God doesn't have a plan in and through all of the evil. We must hold the balance. All of the evil from this world is not from God. That's not its source. It's the world, the world's source. However, God is still sovereign over these things and in control, and we can trust him, knowing that he can take the death of Christ and bring out the resurrection and bring out glory. He can take Joseph and the evil intentions of his brothers and send Joseph to Egypt and save many lives through them. And he can take the tragedy and the pain of your own life and turn it to a gem for his glory and for your ultimate good. Never confuse the fact that God transforms and even plans and even intends the evil those intend against you for good, that somehow that God is a source of that evil. He is not. That evil is not from God, but rather from the world. Let's finish up our passage in verse 17. It says this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God forever? Now notice the transitory nature of the world. This world, and it's not just this world, it's true. This actual world is passing away, right? This, this actual world will be destroyed. Some people are kind of slippery on this. It's very clear. The world will burn and out of its ashes will be resurrected, just like our bodies will be returned back to dust. And so this dust shall be glorified and come again. That is the destiny of the world. It is to burn and to be resurrected and to come back. To the regeneration of all things. But this world will pass away. But actually here, it's not talking about the destruction of the cosmos and its resurrection, but rather the destruction of the evil regime of Satan. That the pain, the suffering, the evilness, all these fleshly desires, all these things, when you want to cry out like the man in Romans chapter 7 who will deliver me from this body of death, all of that is fading away. All of the disappointment, all of the lost family members that you wish were saved, all of the internal sin problems that you have, all of that is fading away. It will be gone. One day you will look out and you'll see none of that. But rather you'll be on a new glorified earth with a new glorified body, with only glorified people who always give God all glory. And that is where we're going. So remember that. When you're tempted to side with the world, you're siding on the team that is going to be blown away. You're siding with the house that's built on the sand that is going to crumble when the storm of God's wrath come upon this world. But what will remain when the storm comes? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? The will of God is to believe on his son, to overcome the world through the blood of Jesus Christ, to accept him, to repent of your sins, and entrust yourself to him and if you do this, you will have eternal life. You have to guarantee, be sealed by the Holy Spirit, have the guarantee of eternal life. And on that day when he will be glorified in his saints, when he will burst into the sky and gather his church, you will be glorified. This perishable will put on imperishability. This mortal will be transformed into immortality. And that which is now immortal will receive the immortal earth. That is our destiny. That is our home. So hang in there. Recognize that this world is passing away. The physical world is passing away. The evil world is passing away. But those who do the will of God abide forever. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we are not passing away. That the present form of this world is passing away. That we will be transformed. That we will go to you, Lord. I pray that you help us to long for that day. Help us to turn back, Lord, as we begin to love the world. Turn our eyes back to you. Help us to find our love and affection in you and you alone. Take us to that wonderful place and help us to serve you in the meantime. Praise in Jesus' name.